Welcome, one and all, to another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Glad to be with you again today. Um, today, we're going to go way back in the Wayback Machine and get medieval with it, if you will, with one of our um, more prolific current authors we have in the Proceedings and Naval History Stable these days, Captain Sam J. Tangretti, who I'm thrilled to finally have in the pages of Naval History, um, as well as Proceedings. Um, He's an important and prolific thinker about naval matters, and he also um, realizes the value of history when you think about what's going on now. Um, before we get to the article we're going to talk about today, I'll um, point out that in a rare occasion, this might be one of the only times this has ever happened, the same author is in the current issue of Naval History as is in the current issue of Proceedings, and that is our guest Sam today. Sam's article in Proceedings is Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Relearn the Lessons of they're, they're from. Uh, Sam, I'll also give a shout out to for um, being the winner of our general prize essay contest, uh, and that will be in the next issue of Proceedings. But today we're here to talk about matters more historical with Sam. Um, I feel like uh, that um, the author today is blazing a new in naval history. He's looking at um, the role of maritime operations in the Great Crusades, the Middle Ages. And there's not a lot been done on this, but there's raw material out there for the seeker of history who goes and digs for it. And that is our guest today, Sam. Sam, welcome aboard. Good to see you. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you. This is, um, we were thrilled to get this article. Um, it's about, the, it's called The Siege of Damietta. It's in the current issue of Naval History. If you haven't gotten yours today, go, gotten yours yet, please go get it today. Um, this is a fascinating piece. Um, and it goes to show how applied history, lessons from the past, um, don't have to just come from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, there are lessons all the way back. You can go to the Battle of Salamis and get lessons that are applicable today. But um, Sam, you've been on a sort of, um, this is part of a larger project you've been working on um, to research this, uh, the, the sort of the maritime slash naval history of uh, the Crusades. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you to tell us about this particular fascinating piece of information here, but what about your larger project? Well, Maybe the God project, if you will. Okay. Well, before I get into that project, let me tell you a little bit about, um, uh, to back up your comment about the importance of history. Uh, my day job, I am the Lighthouse Chair of Future Warfare Studies at the Naval War College. And so my portfolio is on uh, looking at the future and uh, the future of war. Um, a lot of people don't realize how important history is to that study because today most people look at that and they think I should be talking about uh, new technologies, emerging technologies, how hypersonic weapons are going to change everything, how we're going to have autonomous systems, uh, just like you're going to have self-driving and, and, and all that. And those are important things to discuss. but. I always say you cannot understand the future if you do not understand history because technology and tools may change, but humans don't. And so I always say uh, the future is history continued. And I'm always shocked by those people who want to comment or talk about what technologies, how technologies are going to change us, having never studied technologies of the past and what effect they had on, on humans. And so um, my whole approach to the study of history is very much applied history, like you say, because 
I'm trying to learn the lessons of the past in order to see what are the possibilities of the future. So that's that's why I want to buttress your comment about. But this particular project concerning um, the maritime operations of the Crusades comes about for, for several reasons. I've always been fascinated with that era. Uh, my surname, Tangredi, comes from that era. There were uh, crusaders uh, bearing that name um, in the First Crusade. Uh, at the time, it was spelled with a C instead of a G because it was Italianized over the years from Tancredi to Tangredi. And of course, in those days, uh, people didn't use surnames, but that was that was in fact the name of the family. Now, I can't tra trace out my lineage to that because of as I would say, birth of natural children and all, no records. But I've always been fascinated by the Crusades for that reason alone. But the thing that, and history fascinates me in general, but the thing that uh, really struck me in reading about the Crusades and then conducting uh, studies on some of the, in the, some of the primary literatures, how much historians ignored the maritime aspects of the crusade. Uh, maybe ignored is the right word. How, um, how much that they looked at land operations as if they were completely the decisive element and the maritime world was simply a supportive element. And in fact, um, although that's, that's true, particularly of the first crusades, but um, the crusader states stayed alive only because of maritime power. And you can't understand the history of what happened then if you don't understand it. So those are two reasons I'm fascinated by the topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, it's an enduringly um, interesting field of study. And I feel like you've, you're um, blazing a new trail here a little bit, which is exciting for us to um, be able to have a part of what you've been working on. and. You talk about how technologies, new technologies come along. That's certainly true even in the 13th century. Um, this article is about one of history's first specialized amphibious assault ships. And this takes us to the Fifth Crusade, correct? Yes. And uh, it's a heck of a thing because, like you say, um, it's, it, it's, all, it's not just the land campaigns. Here's an example here where this really tough obstacle they had to crack, it took this um, naval innovation to finally break on through. So why don't you tell us the story of the siege of Damietta? Okay, let me let me give you uh, the, the background. Um, when you say the Crusades, what you realize is that it was kind of a, a constant uh, conflict, constant activity in the Levant between um, the uh, Christian Crusader states and the uh, Muslim Arab uh, and other Saracen princes. And this, this was going on. The First Crusade was very successful for the Christians. They um, took a swath of territory, including Jerusalem, which was their objective. You could look at the First Crusade as if it was an armed pilgrimage, in effect. Uh, the, uh, the, the Muslim leaders at the time had cut off uh, the ability of the Westerners to make their pil pilgrimages to the Jerusalem. Uh, it was very important in the spiritual, uh, in the in the in the uh, spirituality of the West. Uh, the Crusaders came to uh, uh, take that territory back, um, and then after that was constant back and forth between the 
crusader states established along the coast uh, in today what would be Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and Israel uh, versus the um, emirs from either Damascus or um, coming out of Egypt. And so at the time of the fifth crusade, um, just before that, during the third crusade, Saladin, the great um, Kurdish warrior, had uh, captured Jerusalem, and it was in the hands of the Muslims. And uh, the fourth crusade set out, never got past Constantinople, became a great, um, uh, great uh, uh, inter-Christian battle. But the fifth crusade started sending crusaders, particularly from Germany, as well as France and and others to um, the Levant. Now, at the time, John of Bren, who held the titular title of King of Jerusalem, although uh, there was no Kingdom of Jerusalem left, really, um, he was in charge of the uh, Crusader uh, activities in the Levant, and all these Crusaders were coming in, and he realized two things: one. There were too many to be able to feed in a relatively arid, arid area. And two, the uh, Arab leaders were not that interested in maintaining control of Jerusalem in comparison to those more productive parts of uh, the then um, Sunni empire. And the most productive parts was Egypt. So um, him and discussing with uh, the other nobles and the arriving crusaders, diverted everybody from the Levant down to uh, the Nile, uh, Damietta, uh, which was a major city on the Nile, and it's still a major city today, um, for two reasons. One, there was a lot more food there that they could take from the land, and two, that was valuable to the, the, the Sultan, to the Saracens, whereas Jerusalem was not of great value. So they were hoping to take land in Egypt to trade for land in the Holy Land. So that's the background. Interesting. So this is um, sort of a redirection for the, um, the Crusades in terms of what the target is, but it indirectly gets them to the main target. That's an interesting aspect of it. Um, John de Bren, who uh, came up with this um, nautical invention, uh, that's not a Templar cross on him, is it? Is that the order he was in? Well, no, he was not a Templar. Um, that drawing, painting of him was done um, years later. So, I mean, it's an interpretation. Uh, mm -hmm. No, he um, he had married, he, he, he was a crusader, and he had married the um, uh, Mary, who, through the family title, had been designated the Queen of Jerusalem because at the time that's how they considered the Crusader states. So he had he had been sort of the prince consort. Uh, this was it's interesting. The the uh, leaders of the Crusades retained the titles even after Jerusalem fell to the the Saracens. Mm -hmm. At the time, the major Crusader uh, city was uh, Acre or Acre, as we would pronounce it, which is now Akko in Israel. And that was a port city. It was a major city. A uh, number of the uh, Arab Muslim traders said it was on the par with Constantinople. 
no, it wasn't that big, but it was a major port for the Crusaders, and it was a major port from trade for east to west. In fact, people have a, a the popular image of the Crusades is not very accurate because we see it as a bloody and bloodthirsty religious war between the Christians and the Muslims, and there's certainly that elements because religion was a motivator. But as it turned out, it was as much a war, very similar to the wars in Europe between princes, uh, kind of a game of, game of Thrones sort of thing. And even during the war, there were Muslim merchants who were moving uh, cargo through uh, Accra. Um, there were Christians who um, were trading with the, the Muslim countries. There were alliances back and forth. In fact, um, you can uh, read about there were uh, uh, constant there were uh, Muslim emirs who were allied to the Christians to fight other Muslim emirs. There were in one case a Christian prince who allied with the Muslims to fight another Christian prince. This was a very complex situation, and it's very it was a political uh, conflict as much as it was religious, and. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, I, I read some of the um, Arab historians on the crusade. It's interesting their take on it because there's stories by Arab travelers about um, going through the Christian territories and being allowed to to uh, um, to uh, travel through that. And in fact, um, Muslims coming from Spain to uh, go to uh that area eventually to take a pilgrimage to Mecca went through Accra. Hmm. Um, and there were um, a comment by one Arab commentator who said, um, you know, I travel through this territory and I see that the uh, there's a Christian overlord, but um, the farms and everything are operated by Muslims under their own chieftain. And I asked them about that. They said, well, taxes are less under hmm. the Christians. When we were ruled by our fellow taxes were double what we pay now so and and the commentator says you know this is this is this is the the, the shame or the problem of uh, of uh, our society how uh, you know the the opponents are nicer to the peasants than we are and so to understand the crusades is very complex getting back to john of bren um he's a very practical leader there's these crusaders sailing and he, he needed to feed them um, so he came up with this plan. Um, these were smart people. Uh, this is another thing about people who, who don't read history. Uh, the people in that age may have not the technology of us and they may not have had uh, polite habits or sanitation or health or anything, but emotionally and psychologically and, um, and, uh, and thought they were us. I mean, they were smart people. They figure figured figure these things out, and it wasn't haphazard. He um, uh, later um, on, uh, after his Queen Mary had died, and he was holding the title and leading the Crusades um, through uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Emperor uh, had claimed the title for himself, and actually, John eventually got uh, kicked out of that area. But um, then through a number of connections became the titular Latin emperor of Constantinople, although that was a uh, uh, that didn't last very long.
Hmm. Anyway, but but my point is, these were smart strategists. These were not these were not ignorant people. They just didn't have the to- toys we had. And they just didn't have the knowledge we had. But in looking at the strategic situation, they could figure things out. That's what's so um, compelling to me about this. It's um, it's an age-old story. It's just as good today. If you don't have the right vessel for the mission at hand, you have to invent that vessel, that platform, if you will. And that's what this is all about. It's sort of this Guns of Navarone-type challenge to get past this bulwark this tower right to get in there and um they have to figure out a way to do that um and they made do with what was at hand like you say they they uh, worked with what they had the the standard um merchant vessel of the time um the cog um let's talk about that as sort of a basis for which they start to build ideas from mm-hmm. yeah um during during the um uh, early medieval period, the basic warship was, of course, the galley, the road galley. And of course, that's what the Viking ships were uh, on their attack. Um, and so you're you're going based on um, human ore power. Uh, at the same time, the merchant vessels traveled by sail power. They were small crude, and um, it was not practical to transport goods using oared vessels. It's very expensive unless the rowers are slaves. Uh, you have to pay them and feed them. Uh, in the case of the Vikings or others um, uh, like them, of course, they were every individual's kind of shared in the booty. So it was kind of a common. Uh, so anyway, in the North Atlantic area, gradually um, galleys became rarer and the cogs, which was the merchant vessel, under sail became the dominant vessel, not simply because before trade, but because it made practical sense from the naval aspect too. Uh, it's very uh, weather is tough um, in in the in the northern regions. Um, uh, the a galley by nature has low freeboard. Uh, you need a higher pre- freeboard, better protected vessel. So gradually uh, the naval forces, and you have to understand that there wasn't necessarily standing naval forces. The sailors worked on merchant uh, and in trade and in merchant ships and then became naval sailors at the whim of the, uh, the leadership and their, to their number were added soldiers. But anyway, uh, gradually the the cog was adopted. It was, um, in the north, it was clinker built. That is, instead of building um, on a, a major frame with a keel, and like we did, boards would be lapped and, uh, in order to construct it. Uh, later versions in the, um, in the Mediterranean area, era of that, um, is when they developed uh, flush sides uh, to their ships. And that's probably because it was um, uh, less uh, uh, because the uh, uh, weather in the Mediterranean and the, and the seas are uh, less hostile than in the North Sea area. Um, so those were the, was the standard. We don't really don't know on how big these vessels were. Um, and uh, mostly because they're 
plans, there are no extent plans that says this is a cog. Rather, we understand it based on um, archival literature on on seals of uh, on documents, on drawings, um, and uh, there have been a few uh about three uh cogs that have been discovered by archaeologists um so that we could get somewhat of a picture of it but um the basic elements of the ship was it was wind powered with a single sail uh it had high bulwarks uh it usually had a high uh prow uh, shaped somewhat like a castle uh and that's how we get the work forecastle for castle, uh, and then um, some sort of structure like that um, aft uh, uh, on the stern. Uh, and uh, let me tell you, voyaging in those sorts of vessels <laughs> required a great deal of bravery if you were going around from, say, uh, the coast of Germany or Frisia, which is the islands, uh, um, the German and Dutch islands right there on the coast. If you were going from that all the way around through, uh, uh, through down the channel, through the Bay of Biscay, all the way through Gibraltar and stuff, that's a challenging voyage in a, a small vessel. Um, so anyway, those were the vessels that they used to come into the lot. Uh, there were still road or galleys in that period too, but um, for practical reasons, the, uh, the cog was the, main warship and um the crusaders and others became very creative in trying to make uh, some sort of uh structures on these vessels in order to engage in what was in effect missile warfare that is um sieges against uh, uh cities uh and uh um defending against uh the uh missile attacks from the cities. And of course, as the article talks about, the, the main weapon and all that was what we call Greek fire, which is basically a naphtha or, um, or um, like napalm. Um, and that was either uh, fired by a ballista catapult or thrown as grenades, or uh, it was difficult to do it using arrows but uh, you could throw it as a, um, like you were throwing a bomb. And uh, once that caught fire, uh, water can't put it out. So they would have to use other tools like sand or gravel or acid, or in one case, uh, urine uh, to uh, put out fire started by Greek fire. I've always been fascinated by Greek fire, actually. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but to this day, we're still not quite sure what the recipe for Greek fire was. And, you know, people have been trying to figure that out forever because it sounded like a pretty brutal thing for uh, back then. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we um, it was it was uh, uh, discovered by the Byzantines, uh, probably um, somewhere around uh, 300. Of course, the Chinese had a, a version of it, too, um, but uh, and they used it. Uh, they did not use it in combat as extensively as um, it was in the West, but it was a secret weapon of the Byzantines. They would not share the formula uh, at all. And in fact, the way they used it is they built onto their ships uh, a siphon. And they would literally blow the Greek fire and its flames onto an opposing ship. 
Um, they had bellows within the ship. Uh, they would actually blow the flames out through this tube, uh, the flames and the liquid out to this tube onto other ships. That was their method. By the time of the Crusades, um, that was no longer seen as practical. So usually they used it in the same way uh, they would fill it into what we would consider grenades or hand-thrown bombs or some sort of projectile that would be fired uh, by catapult. Just think, somewhere in some still undiscovered Byzantine vault, there's a scroll with the formula for Greek fire on it. Oh, or, or Eric, maybe it was just in the mines and passed down orally so yeah. that it wouldn't be on paper and then captured. But as far as we can see, the elements that have been identified that uh, probably weren't are basically the same elements that we used in uh, napalm today or when we used napalm. Uh, it's a... Uh, uh, a sticky combustible that once it uh, sticks to a surface cannot be easily pulled off, cannot be doused with water. Uh, it catches fire because of a chemical reaction once it hits it hits against a target. And Ooh. that's very similar to napalm. Yes. Well, let's talk about the target now, the uh, obstacle, the great uh, sea Tower of Damietta, and why it was such a tough thing to crack. Well, we don't really know how tall it was, um, and the the uh, pictures that we have, like you used in the article, are interpretations done later by Renaissance painters. These are not contemporary illustrations, but the one that you just showed um, has kind of the concept. Uh, apparently, it was a tower uh, built, um, as I describe it, it's like a collapsible or expandable telescope with uh, one set and another set coming up. Um, according to the uh, uh, records uh, done by uh, Oliver Paterborn, um, it was uh, 70 tiers tall. We have no idea what a tier is. Uh, but it must have been a number of levels. That picture shows it just as two levels, but number of levels. And, and it was considered significant because um, it was designed so that a smaller force could defend it by moving to various levels. And it was hard to get above that first, first level. So uh, Oliver designed a um, method to reach the upper level of this tower. And it basically, it was a, a ramp that swung down kind of in the same way we use bow ramps in amphibious vessels, such as the LST, except it was up. What they did is they built a structure. They put two cogs together. They built a structure somewhat like a siege tower um, with a high um, fortress. And then in this fortress, they had this... Uh, bow um oliver um uh describes it as a movable bridge that they could swing down onto one of the levels so that they could actually cross onto this tower above where the defenders might be uh if the defenders were down below trying to prevent anybody from climbing up from alongside which was very difficult because it's on a small little island or rock there in the middle of the Nile defending the city. Um, so 
by use of that ramp. And uh, apparently it was something new, although you would think that it was, um, it's a very simple concept. And in fact, in the ancient times, um, they didn't, they, the Romans had something sort of equivalent, but this, this one was perched up high as if it were on a tower. And apparently it was something like uh, 35 feet longer, uh, uh, longer, it, it extended 35 feet beyond the prow of the vessel. And um, it wasn't, it was not a standard uh uh, naval vessel of the time. Uh, so it gave them the great advantage because they could attack from an upper level. And that's what they didn't have before. In the past, the attack on this tower was conducted by cogs with scaling ladders, just like you would they would use during the siege of cities on land. And uh, that could be easily defended against. But once this ramp swung down and lodged into the uh onto one of the uh one of the levels is very difficult to dislodge it just like uh, very similar to the the sort of thing you would do in a amphibious with the amphibious warships bow ramp yeah it's genius it, it's on one hand it's like a, a floating uh roman siege tower on the other hand it reminds me a little bit of uh the corvus that the ancients used where it comes down and there's this nasty like beak-like spike in there. And once it's there, those halls are locked and you can't, you know, they can't get away. So right. of course it's Latin for raven because it looked like a raven. Mm -hmm. And the way this thing gets on there and boom, and then they can't dislodge it. Um, quite an amazing feat. Um, we have a question from a viewer who wants to uh, hear more about how you did your research. Um, um, primary sources, etc. And if there are the good primary sources for this era, for this period of history, um, are English translations readily available for a lot of them, or do you have to like go to the original language? No, uh, English translations are very available uh, because of a program done originally at the University of Pennsylvania and then later at University of Wisconsin. There was a series of uh, translations of the great uh, historians or narrative, con contem contemporary historians, historians of the Crusades. Um, in this case, uh, Oliver Paterborn is our, our primary source, although there was others, um, Jean de Vren and others. Um, and Oliver's uh, history was translated into English in the 50s. And there's a current translation um, that is available today uh, on Amazon as part of a um, history of the crusades of that period. Anyway, um, the major resources are in English, including the Arab uh, sources. There was a, a scholar by the name of Francisco Gabriel, an Italian who translated most of the Arab sources, again, in the 1950s. The 1950s seemed to be a, a period, in early 60s seemed to be a period that scholars were interested in the crusades. I could explain that later but anyway they exist you could also go online and look at the original manuscripts um and um there are um ways to look at that of course um in high school i studied latin so i could try to read and attempted to read some of the manuscripts of course you know over the years the language changed what was classical uh what was classical latin in the roman era 
was not uh, is not the same as the Middle Ages. But you can you can you can actually make out, and there's a number of universities uh, who have put these sources online. Um, and of course, the sources were manuscripts that were handwritten, uh, that was co hand copied. Um, so they're not easy to uh, uh, decipher, uh, even if you uh, are, uh, uh, have studied Latin. So the answer to the question is yes, the English, there's English translations that are readily, readily available uh, to you know, go look at some of the uh, work uh, uh, by uh, an editor by the name of Seaton, who was a professor at, I believe, at University of Pennsylvania, put out uh, three, five-volume sets uh, in the late 60s that, uh, in which it was edited, in which each expert in a particular uh, crusade era wrote a chapter on, and that'll give, that'll take you to where the translations uh, can be found. Um Sounds like there's a wealth of material out there, and uh, we do live in a golden age of research. Right. Access ancient and medieval primary sources online. Uh, I mean, this is a if you like this kind of thing, it's like a, a fantasy of a of the future. Like fifty years from now, you'll be able to go on a computer and look. You know, as opposed yeah, to, to Stuttgart to some library reference library. You know, so uh, it really is a golden age for this, which means that uh, a lot more of digging up of what happened in the past. Um, it should happen. History's never finished being written, as, as you obviously know. Um, so this is a great and interesting piece of uh, a chapter of uh, naval architecture history, if you will, that most people haven't even thought about or seen. But it seems to me there must be a lot of other good stuff uh, just in this fertile period that um, uh, you mentioned the Vikings. Um, they were involved in the Crusades to a certain degree, Christianized Vikings, correct? Yes. In fact, there was um, a king of, uh, of uh, Denmark who actually went on crusade using longships. Um, Jamsferer, what does he call it? Uh, uh, Jerusalemferer. Um, was his uh, name. Um, and so there is so much maritime activity. The Vikings got as far as Spain. And then at the time, uh, the Spanish were trying to reconquer the peninsula from the, um, from the uh, uh, Muslims who had uh, conquered most of Spain. And the, uh, the uh, Danes and Norwegians uh, supported them. And then later they did travel through the uh, uh, Mediterranean to the Levant. Um, there are some, so many activities. The, the merchant cities such as uh, Venice, Genoa, Pisa got into the action to uh, transfer uh, uh, soldiers, fighters from Europe to the Levant. Uh, at the same time, uh, some of them, the Venetians were still trading with Egypt uh, is a, is a, a very complex picture. Um, and as I said, not much study has been done, uh, not much detailed study has been done on the uh, maritime aspects because uh, the focus was on land. Also, um, our ver vision of the Crusades as um, merely some sort of uh, bloody, uh, ignorant, uh, struggle, religious struggle, 
without any point and uh, and uh, certainly unholy uh, comes from writings, particularly in the 1950s, particularly from an uh, English historian called Steve Runciman, who was later knighted Sir Steve Runciman. In the 50s, late in the 50s, he wrote uh, a three-volume set on the history of the Crusades. Uh, it's still in print. I've got uh, uh, copies. And he was a great writer, stylistic writer. And uh, a lot of the crusade studies uh, took their cue. Now, Runstedman originally was a historian of the Byzantine Empire, which when you're a historian like that, usually you fall in love with your subject. And of course, the crusades had uh, invaded Constantinople and uh, uh, really destroyed the strength of the Byzantine Empire. And finally, the Arabs overthrew it. So um, he uh, uh, he. Basically, he uh, wrote the history in such a way to make it very negative to the Crusaders. And he admitted that um, in some interviews saying, uh, no, uh, the Byzantine and the Arabs were superior civilizations and the Western Europeans were just barbarians. And so uh, our understanding of the Crusades comes from that. Um, and uh, we don't realize the complexity of it. But also, Runciman was very land-centric. Uh, he did not write much about maritime operations. In fact, relatively little. So relatively little has been um, written from the maritime perspective. Until recently, um, there's a not, lot of uh, uh, history of the Mediterranean that now talks about that. There's um, uh, some work being done. Uh, there's uh, some excellent work by uh, Charles Stanton who has written some uh, uh, academic works on medieval naval warfare. Uh, he, um, uh, now these works are published by academic, primarily academic publishers. And the two problems are, of course, they're not uh, popularly written. And uh, pardon me with my uh, head, headset, not popularly written and um, um, very expensive to obtain. What my goal is, is to um, eventually, when I really get serious about this project, work on a history that people enjoy reading that's focused on uh, naval maritime operations of the Crusades. Uh, there's nothing like that that has been published yet. There's been articles such as the one that uh, just published naval history, but nobody has gone and looked at the history of the naval operations of the Crusades in the way a Jim Hornfisher would write it or um, Barbara Tuckman or, or someone who could take history and bring it alive to the reader. There is, There have been some studies, very small, uh, in the academic world, but of course they read like academic texts and uh, um, very important, very detailed, very scholarly, very informative, um, mostly accurate, but not the sort of thing a person a uh, non-specialist who loves history, wants to read about history. That's the sort of thing they would necessarily read. And that's that's one of the reasons that people don't really um, know much about the maritime operations, because there have been narrative histories written about the First Crusade, the land operations, how they conquered Jerusalem, and then King Richard, the Th Richard the Lionhearted versus Saladin and the battles they had. In the, in the Holy Land and that sort of thing. There have been some pretty exciting books written about that. There haven't been too many exciting things written about the uh, maritime history, with the exception of um, Malta and the Knights of Malta and the Siege of Malta. 
but that comes later on uh, following the Great Crusades, although that was, again, a Christian versus Muslim struggle. So uh, what we really need to do is um, is have some writers really uh, write some pretty interesting, as I said, Jim Hornfisher style about that period. And uh, maybe someday I will. Um, but I've got so many other projects uh, before that, that uh, it'll be a while. Well, we really think you're onto something here. And we're thrilled to be able to have had an opening salvo of your ongoing research in this in the current issue of Naval History. And we look forward to seeing more, Sam. I can't wait to talk to you about some of this offline. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see what comes. But stay tuned, folks. Maybe we'll have more um, about this very topic and for future issues of the magazine. Meanwhile, Proceedings is taking up a lot of your bandwidth because you're in there a lot, uh, writing these important articles for the fleet for today. And um, we're just really um, honored and thankful to have you on here today, Sam. It's great to be with you and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime very soon. Okay, thank you, Eric. It's fun. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this one, folks. Um, the latest Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Um, as we always do when we close, I invite you, if you're not a member of the Naval Institute yet, you really should be, uh, become part of the discussion, the historical discussion, the current discussion. They all blend together, and you find it all here. Just It's right there on your screen. Just go to that prompt, and you'll be good to go, and we'll be glad to have you in the fold. Um, that's it for me. I'm Eric Mills, um, and we'll see you next time.